I'm going to be a diva. No, then an executive. The meme is like spends two days at Condé Nast. <laughs> <laughs> like the door opens, the fan is blowing. <laughs> no, right? But I want you to know who is on here and I'm ready. So come on, baby. Hey, nasty women. Samita here. Kate's feeling a little under the weather this week, so we're going to jump right into our interview with Meredith Talusin. I've known Meredith for a long time. We work together on a couple of projects, and we have some mutual friends, but I also know her from her groundbreaking work on trans issues and trans reporting. So we're so happy to be able to include her voice on the show. Hope you enjoy the interview. We are delighted to have joining us today uh, a Nasty Women contributor, Meredith Talusen. She is an award-winning journalist and author who's also a senior editor at Them. They have written features, essays, and opinion pieces for many publications, including The Guardian, The Atlantic, Vice, Matter, Back Channel, The Nation, Mike, BuzzFeed News. When are you sleeping? (laughs) Does this list stop? The American Prospect. She received the 2017 Glad Media and Deadline Awards and has contributed to several books, including ours, um, and currently lives in New York City with a partner and a dog. Um, I didn't realize you had a dog, actually. I do have a dog. Tell us about your dog. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my dog. Her name is Ronnie. She's she's named after Charlize Theron. So when we're a little disappointed with her, you know, we use her full name, Charlize Theron. (laughs) on Hanson to loosen, but usually she's just called Ronnie. And the wonderful thing about Ronnie is that she is she's a rescue. She's a half schnauzer, Aww. half pit bull, which means that most people don't know that she's a pit bull. And when people say, you know, when I say, oh, yeah, she's a pit bull, and they're just like, oh, I don't see the pit bull. They're just like, it's just like you can't see that I'm trans, but I am, and it's Aww. important. So, you know, like we sort of have a thing. And this is part of the reason why I write for so many places because they have these like kooky ideas. So, yeah. <laughs> so now like I'm going to I'm going to pitch that to like pets.com I, or something. I, mean, I feel like pets.com could use some expansion <laughs> in their like creative direction. Yes. <laughs> um, well, dogs are very relevant content to Kate. Yes, um, always. <laughs> Kate, do you want to do you want to start? Sure. So, Meredith, we were hoping you could tell us a little bit about them, the new publication that you are a senior editor of. Yes. Um, so them is um, an online platform from Condé Nast. It's for, it's Condé Nast's first all digital freestanding title, which is really amazing. Um, and it's also Condé Nast's first um, LGBTQ publication. Um, and we have been online for about a month now and have published pieces that I'm really proud of, you know, like everything from Alex Chi on Kevin Spacey to, you know, to editorials about Me Too from various trans perspectives to, uh, you know, to this, you know, we also produce these really beautiful videos. The latest one is called Butch Please, which Uh is about the seeming disappearance, the apparent disappearance of butch culture, Mm. but you know, as you found out, it hasn't really disappeared. And so, yeah, so um, it's been it's been a really intense and exciting time. And um, it's only going to grow more even exciting. Yeah. Yeah, that's really awesome. It's a gorgeous website. And 
I would love to know, and you and I have talked about this before as women of color in this space, and you know, I think your essay in Nasty Women really talks about the difference between kind of including, right? Uh, say like a mainstream publication has like an LGBTQ vertical, right? As like an additive versus kind of centralizing the voices of the LGBTQ community and actually writing stories from that perspective. Um, what has kind of your experience been with both of those? Both like, you know, you were a contributor at BuzzFeed mm-hmm. and now the shift to kind of running, you know, um, right. and kind of directing. Right. You know, like I feel like as a reporter, it has always been really important for me to center LGBTQ plus issues, but with a specifically intersectional lens that involves, you know, race, feminism, immigration, disability, you know, like I've written on the intersections of all of these minority issues in various ways. And I feel like when the opportunity came around to be able to sort of like infuse an entire publication with the resources of Conde Nast. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, it so happened, you know, that when Philip Picardi, our chief content officer, Twitter DM'd me, by the way, a very contemporary form of job recruitment, <laughs> you know, like to talk about this publication, I had just published this medium piece the week before about, you know, like my experience being a minority, specifically like a trans woman femme reporter at Mike and how my name actually ended up being erased from an award for my work for a project called Unerased <laughs> Counting Transgender Lives, right? You know, so the the layers upon layers of irony yeah. um, in that. And it was a piece that, you know, that a lot of people shared, you know, cis and trans and minorities of various sorts. And I, I, and I ended up, you know, sort of like getting so much feedback, so many, you know, so many stories, so many stories (laughs) about being, um, especially like a a minority woman in media. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I felt I took to heart. You know, there was just like such a kismet of timing Mm -hmm. that then I got this job offer the next week. And I was just like, you know, I complain about the lack of minority, especially trans minority voices in editorial positions. And I can't keep complaining about that if I have the opportunity to be in that position. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of how things ended up playing out. And I'm and I'm incredibly happy. It's it's I was hesitant to move from to move from writing to editorial at mm-hmm. first, but within the first day. I was just yeah. like, oh, I yeah. like this. Yeah. I can get used to this. Yeah. yeah. The, that yeah. was, I had a really similar experience when I became an editorial <laughs> director at Mike as yeah. well. And it was kind of like I had always been a writer. And then to be asked to all of a sudden edit and be an editorial director was such a big transition. But I realized that that's actually where a lot of these bigger decisions get made. And the difference between, like, often, I was people would only reach out to me because they were like, oh, Aziz Ansari has like a new series out. Like, we need a feminist <laughs> Indian perspective, you know? And it's like, and, and and Kate knows this, like my body of work is is way beyond the South. Like I've written a lot of things that are not just about South Asian identity, but mm-hmm. that's consistently what mainstream media asks me to write about. Sure. Everyone's always like, oh, we need that perspective. So often writers of color are in these like Rolodexes, literally, you know, right. lists and where it's like, oh, you reach out to that person. But it's very rare that like we're in a position of power to make these kind of bigger editorial decisions. Right. Um, and one of the questions that Kate and I get all the time is like, oh, how is your book so diverse? 
worse. And, you know, and, and it's like, well, of course, we were super intentional about it. But it's also like, these are our friends, like these, this is our circle. Right. And, and, and my question is always like, well, how are you not that diverse? Right. Like, and why would you assume that like, I would just put a book together or that Kate would just put a book together of just like cis white women? Like why? Right. Right? Or even, or even the whole concept of like diversity as a sort of like objectified thing. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, like why, why does your book consist of an intersection of women's voices. I mean, you know, like this idea that somehow diversity is something that you can kind of like sprinkle onto an already pre-made pie, like it's confectioner sugar, you know, like it has to be, you know, like in order for the flavor to come out, I'm going with this metaphor, (laughs) as you can tell, (laughs) because it's like the week after Thanksgiving (laughs) and I'm still thinking about pie Um, (laughs) in order for the flavor to be, you know, deep and fully infused. It has to be in the effing pie. Like it can't just be, you know, sprinkled on there afterwards. Meredith, uh, one of the, the things that we love about your essay in Nasty Women is that you really talk like you literally say sometimes you got to throw a brick it's really a call to feminists to be more serious about demanding what we want and to not just kind of like march quietly and ha- you know and congratulate ourselves on having a peaceful protest because what we're dealing with is fascism and you can't you know just protest that peacefully i i would love to hear you talk more about that and without like putting you on the spot also want to talk about, you know, when you wrote that, you weren't suddenly editor of a Condé Nast publication as you are now. And so I'm just wondering, like, if you could just talk a bit about the difference between kind of a more radical approach and then working to change things from within the system as you more or less are in this position now. Right. Um, And and I actually don't think the gap between those two things is so great. Neither do I. You know, like, I call myself... (laughs) I call myself a site-specific radical. <laughs> nice. So I'm radical in all spaces, except that, you know, except that, like, I take the space that I'm in into account, you know, like, in terms of, in terms of, like, the degree of radicality that I can occupy. And I think, and yeah, you know, so so one of the things, one of the first things that we did as a publication, and I have to say, like, this isn't, you know, this actually was not, a decision that I mainly made. Um, it was a decision that was made by the group and was spearheaded by Philip Picardi, who I say is like the most generous white man on the planet. And has the best eyebrows. Can we and, talk about yeah, his eyebrows? And, you know, like <laughs> if if Phil's eyebrows had been more prominent, we would still be using on fleek yeah. today. <laughs> um, it's true. It's true. <laughs> and we, you know, I don't know if y'all followed this, but there was a documentary about um, Marsha P. Johnson that came out, The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, and David Franz made it. And then um, Raina Gossett, who is a Black trans filmmaker, had been trying to make a similar documentary and, and, you know, like had a lot of feelings about it on Instagram and talked about it. And, you know, like, and we made the editorial decision to incorporate or sort of like ask her to bring her voice into the context of them. And we hadn't launched at that point. And so like we published her editorial on Instagram and then it was cross published to Teen Vogue at the time. And I feel like for a publication, 
that is in this context to do that is itself, you know, kind of like a radical act. But it was something that was really important for us to do because I feel like we felt like this was an important moment for us to be able to bring this voice to a place where such voices aren't often represented. And, you know, and that was something that has been deeply resonant to me and has been really inspiring. And also, you know, just kind of like the way that trans women and femmes of color rallied around this issue, the way that Janet Mock wrote an amazing, amazing Mm -hmm. allure editorial about it, and the way that it exposed, you know, like I'm getting emotional, actually, the way that it exposed for us, you know, these existing back channels of communication between trans women and kind of like realizing how much support there is, you know, just because before that moment, Janet and I were friends and Raina and I were actually not close friends, but Raina was instrumental to my life because she was working at the Sylvia Rivera Law Project when I needed to get naturalized as an American citizen. And I couldn't actually go to the naturalization office because I had gone once before and had been severely harassed by the officer interviewing me. And so, you know, to sort of like discover that, oh, like there are these relationships and these webs and these networks of trans women of color, especially supporting each other, was just this really, really amazing experience. And I feel like for me, one of the things that I'm really deeply committed to as somebody who has, you know, been seen and lived lives in both gender roles is the way in which like so many people's reactions to things are gendered, even though they don't think those reactions are. And one of the things that I observed with the Women's March is wonderful, peaceful marching, you know, like now let's get stuff done, you know, like, but also like from a Filipino perspective, you know, like from somebody who grew up in a dictatorship saw, you know, like 2 million people overthrow a 20 year old dictatorial government. Like to me, like watching that many people march is just like, that's an opportunity. It's, it's rare. And, you know, like it's important for us to seize the moment and continue seizing the moment. And I still feel, I still feel the resonance of that moment today and actually like many many days <laughs> yeah 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 i and i know um you know one thing i always thought about with the women's march was not getting arrested you know as someone who's been a protester for so long not getting arrested as a, at a protest isn't something you brag about that means you didn't do it right and i thought it was so interesting that like after the women's <laughs> march everyone was like and not one arrest and it's like that means you did nothing <laughs> well, it was, it's really funny just because like the major i only got naturalized in 2012 in part because, you know, like I didn't want to naturalize during the Bush years and I had all of these reservations about it. And then, you know, and then one of my friends was just like, well, if you naturalize, it would, you can get arrested without being deported. And I was just like, okay, go, you know, like because (laughs) it is, you know, this ability for us to be able to, you know, be able to protest and protest in a way that matters to people, in a way that confronts existing power structures is is such an important part 
of our existence in the context that we're living in now. And I kind of feel like, you know, because of the fact that I didn't grow up in the States, I was in the Philippines for 15 years. Y'all brainwashed me into thinking that you had, you all had these principles (laughs) and that, you know, like life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Like now, you know, like now you need to bring it. Like now, now that I'm here, I have those expectations because, you know, because y'all can't just like spew this propaganda. Yeah. And then just be like, oh, no, wait, <laughs> psych, sorry. Just kidding, you know? yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you, have you followed the J20 arrests, all the anarchists that got arrested on Inauguration Day? Some of them are facing up to 60 years. And it's interesting because like some major outlets are covering it, but right. it's really like a lot of smaller outlets that have been covering it. And I think speaks to this larger point of this is consistently a strategy that a fascist regime will use, right? Like they will arrest you for a dissent. They will attempt to incarcerate you. And we're talking so much about resistance, but we're not actually talking about like, no, but if we actually do mass protest right now, like we will get arrested and they will throw right. the book at us. It is not, This is not a friendly time. Yeah, I mean, the American people in my life get a little bit concerned about me just because, you know, like I grew up in a context where, you know, where arrest, where, you know, the people have been jailed for years. And, and, you know, like when they come out, it's just like, this is my service Mm -hmm. to my country, right? And our national hero who died by firing squad, Jose Rizal, was a writer. And so the people in my life get a little bit concerned about me around these issues just because like the Filipino self inside of me is just like, well, this is part of what it means to resist fascist forces when you're supposed to be in a democracy, right? Like you're supposed to take these risks. And I know, like I understand that the position that I'm in right now, in some ways it may seem that that's very different from doing that kind of protesting. Yeah. But I'm telling you now that, like, saying the words that I'm saying, right? Like, who knows? We all play, like, minorities in media. We all play a game on Twitter where we're just like, okay, like, how like how much criticism can we make? Like, how can we, you know, like, is it possible for us to critique the institutions that we work in mm-hmm. without, you know, like, without Losing undue consequences? Um, for us. And, you know, and in a way, like, I feel like that's the spirit of protest that I employ on a regular basis mm-hmm. now, right? And and also, you know, like, I, I, I was re- recently interviewed by Catapult, which is this amazing, amazing writer's organization. But one of the things that I said in the interview is that, like... Whose senior that, editor is in Nasty Women as well, Nicole Chung. Yes, Nicole yes, Chung. Yes, Nicole Chung, amazing. amazing. Whose essay is, yeah, anyway, I will so stop good. fangirling. <sighs> But, um, but yeah, I, uh, oh, what were we talking about? I'm trying to remember now. You just did an interview with. Oh, yes, that's right. You know, like where I was just, where I was just like, I refuse to be a token when I know I'm a gem. And at the time I actually had to like think through what I said when I said that a number of times. And I thought about asking her to edit it out because it felt arrogant, right? But then I was just like, it only feels arrogant from your intersectional minority position, right? You know, all minorities and all kind of like disadvantaged people, you know, should be able to proclaim their worth 
without people criticizing them, you know, because that's something that white men get to do on a day-to-day basis, and it's just normal. We're always negotiating with this double bind, and I'm the type of person who's just like, okay, I will call your bluff. Because if you try to question my credentials, like, I can give you all the receipts. (laughs) I can give you all the receipts you want. I didn't bother to get these advanced degrees and write for this many publications to then be diminished as as an intersectional minority in media. That's right. Wow, I'm in a feisty mood. Yeah, I like it. We're here for it. We're here for it. Um, Excellent. A lot of big brick throwers on this on this call. (laughs) I have so many things I want to ask about the Nazi piece and the times i want to go back (laughs) like because because i the thing i was thinking about with that is when people are in positions of editorial decision making right um the thing we never talk about is unconscious bias if you have certain people in decision making powers that subconsciously may not like it's like you can just say like i'm obviously not a racist i am super inclusive i am not transphobic but it's actually like it's these subconscious decisions that we make that rely on the decisions that we've already made inside that we may not even realize right. that we've made. I'm, I'm obviously very personally fascinated in this issue, right. um, having kind of run, you know, an identities vertical. And, and, you know, even when I was executive editor at Feministing, that was a decision that we made internally because it just mattered to have a woman of color at the helm of like a big feminist publication. Right. Historically, that had just not happened before. Absolutely. And for me, when people talk about diversity, they just assume it's the things that we say out loud and it's the things that we can kind of write and contribute. But there's all these subconscious things that happen. Right. And when I read that piece in the New York Times for listeners that may not have seen this, um, you know, the New York Times did this really fluffy piece about the quote unquote Nazi next door. And it was this really intimate and compassionate profile, which I would have loved to see about Mike Brown when he was killed by a police officer in Ferguson. Right. I would have loved to see a piece about Trayvon Martin's mother, who is one of the most phenomenal women I've ever read about, you know, never with that kind of generosity and imagining in the editor's meeting sitting around and being like this is the right thing to do and not having one person in the room be like well actually (laughs) right right (laughs) so can you speak to that I mean did you read the article and well first of all you know one of the things that I do when I know that an article is going to make me angry is I save it until I have the you know, like I have the bandwidth to read it. So I actually have not read the article because like just the idea of reading it already makes my blood boil. So I've only been I've only been observing um, people's reactions online. And the thing that I can say is that these types of decisions of unconscious bias, these types of decisions where people don't understand that there's so many, so many dimensions and layers to what it means to to run a publication or what it means to make those types of editorial decisions. I think that most, most, especially white people in media positions, like try to do their due diligence and try to do their best. And as I understand it, the intention of the piece was editorially was, 
you know, to sort of show that neo-Nazis are not these like evil creatures, Mm -hmm. like they're, you know, they're people who are among us. But then inadvertently, it actually demonstrated the opposite, right? That that, that it risks normalizing neo-Nazis. And I feel like this is one of those situations where, you know, where like the number, the intersections of people, of minorities in editorial rooms can make a really, really big difference, right? We're not a monolith, right? Like we have differences of opinion and and a lot of times it actually takes like triangulation and discussion mm-hmm. in order to come to you know like a concrete decision recently i was on the conservative side of this discussion when we published a piece by Sumita and i's mutual friend and former editor gabriel arana um, which was about the role of white gay men in the lgbtq plus movement and I wanted, like, an objective headline, you know, like, I was favoring was something like, you know, was like, white cis gay men have come to crash the intersectional party, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and there were other minorities on our staff who was just like, I don't think, I don't think that does service to the piece. You mm-hmm. know, like, two other minorities on our staff said, we think that we need to make it explicit that this piece is communicating that white gay men are actually interfering with intersectional LGBTQ plus rights movement. But ultimately, that decision was made to run with the more explicitly political headline because of the fact that there were more than one, there was more than one minority voice in that room, right? You know, like I encounter that all the time. Like we are... You know, like we're an editorial staff that's majority racial minority. I'm not the only trans person on staff. Um, yay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah. And and so I feel like when these editorial decisions were made, I mean, like I have no insight into the structure of the times, but I have seen situations in which single minorities there are there's so much pressure exerted on individual minorities to like represent their entire people like their entire identity the identities of others like the identities of races and religions and backgrounds that aren't even theirs while also you know having the sort of like background pressure of like well if you don't agree with us then you know like maybe this uh, this will affect our perception of your performance right mm-hmm. All of that stuff like is happening at the same time. And and so, yeah, so, you know, so having that like huge, huge pressure and burden makes it difficult sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, like in in newsrooms where one has to make key important decisions about about content. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we have one question left that we ask all of our guests. Okay, Meredith. Oh, my gosh. Okay, What makes you a nasty woman oh my gosh oh gosh like this is like the most difficult question ever (laughs) Uh, interestingly that's Um, like true for everyone we interview (laughs) all right what makes me a nasty woman is that i have been a janet jackson fan since i was a kid as like a kid in the philippines i memorized the choreography to nasty to control to rhythm nation to miss you much 
And when I was older, I like totally did like the if. Oh, yes. The if like, you know, intervention dance back when I was, you know, back when I was less aware of appropriation. (laughs) (laughs) And so as a result, I have always been nasty and will be nasty forever. Yes. She just played here. Did you see her? I'm so devastated. She was just here in concert. I know. I know. I missed yeah. her. <sighs> anyway. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can we find you on the internet so we can find Oh, yes. Nasty okay. Um, my <laughs> socials are, I always just say, like, one, the numeral one, demerit with an H. Like, it's a silly pun that I constructed in 2009 when I was still, like, an academic and was into such things. Okay. And then it just, you know, like, and then it just happened. But you can just, like, look me up, Meredith Toulousen, on the interwebs. I've been learning about Instagram stories and have been, like, posting cute Killing outfits. Killing it, yes. You know? That lipstick game has been on point. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and where can we find them? Them is them.us. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Hope you thought Meredith was as engaging as we did. Until next time, keep rating, subscribing, and sending us voice memos. And remember, stay nasty. Stay nasty.